Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, how Maria Konnikova learned to pay attention, master herself and win in her latest book, The Biggest Bluff. Maria Konnikova is the author of Mastermind and The Confidence Game, both of which we've previously talked about on Little Atoms. She is a regular contributor to The New Yorker and has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, Slate, New Republic, Paris Review, The Wall Street Journal, Salon and Wired, among many other publications. Her writing has won numerous awards, including the 2019 Excellence in Science Journalism Award from the Society of Personality and Social Psychology. And Maria's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention master myself and win. Maria, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Let's talk about what, I guess, what the initial idea behind this book was. So initially, the book wasn't even supposed to be about poker in the sense that I didn't care about poker. I didn't know about poker. Poker was not on my radar as a possible book topic in any way, shape or form. What I did want to write a book about was luck and the role that it plays in our lives. I wanted to explore an admittedly very philosophical quest and query. How much of our lives are within our control? How do we learn to tell the difference between the things that are within our purview and the things that are outside it between skill and chance? And that's just, that's not not a book. That's just a, a deep thing that's going to break your mind if you if you start thinking about it for too long. And so I needed a way into the topic. And I was reading a lot about chance and came across John von Neumann's theory of games. And von Neumann is the father of game theory, also the father of the computer, which we're speaking on right now, uh, since we can't do this in person. And he's one of the creators of the hydrogen bomb. I mean, one of the great minds true polymath geniuses of the 20th century. And he was a poker player. And what I learned from him was that poker was the foundation of game theory, that he believed that poker was the game that was best suited to understand strategic decision making in real life, that the way that 
the game played out, the balance of the knowns and unknowns, because poker is a game of incomplete information. There are cards that I know, cards that you know, cards we both know, but a lot of stuff is private. And that's very much like life. And he said, because of that balance of the knowns to the unknowns, and because it's a game of people, it's a game of strategy, it's a game of deception, what he called little tactics of deception, it becomes a really fascinating tool for exploring how to make these big strategic decisions on a personal and political and what, whatever scale you want to scale it up to. And he thought that if he could solve poker, if he actually had a way to take this game and figure out the optimal approach always, that he'd have a key to solving all strategic decisions in life. He thought that poker would actually help prevent nuclear war. No Limit Hold'em, which is the game he played and the game I took up, still hasn't been solved. It's it's kind of this gold standard for AI research. But this challenge intrigued me. And so I decided to read a little bit about poker and realize that this could be my way into the questions that I had in mind, that this could be my book. Why don't I, someone who knows nothing about the game, find someone to teach me? Why don't I immerse myself in this world, learn it, and then use my journey as a way of exploring the questions that had interested me to begin with, this balance of skill and chance in life? And that was the beginning of The Biggest Bluff. So you've just described the game of poker there and i mean i before picking up this book and in fact obviously you know i've we've spoken before we're friends on social media so i've actually watched this book unfold what you were doing for this book in like real time which was obviously you know fascinating and then getting to actually read it in an absolutely you know gripping story in this book but i had no interest whatsoever in poker like i'm sure like many people i just presume it's a you know, it's a it's a game played in the middle of the night in smoke-filled rooms by seedy people. It's obviously gambling. You've just described how, you know, John von Neumann described it. So to look at that another way, how does poker differ then from, on the one hand, chess, uh, you know, a, a, an extremely respectable game um, that people play, very you know, for very high stakes, and on the other hand, say, roulette, which is, a, you know, another game that people play in, in casinos for money. How does poker differ from those two extremes? So poker is sort of in the middle of them, but much closer to chess. And it's very unfortunate that because historically poker has been played in casinos and it is linked to money um, that people mistake it for gambling. And I spend a lot of time in the book trying to make it very clear that poker actually is not gambling. It's a game of skill. It's much closer to chess. But the reason von Neumann actually hated both chess and roulette, he thought they were boring because, I mean, he thought they were interesting for their own reasons, but he had no interest in playing them or in solving them because to him, they offered zero insight into human decision making that he was interested in because chess on the one hand is a game of perfect information so you see the entire board you see all the pieces and what von neumann said was give me enough computing power and i will tell you the right move i will solve this for you there is always a move that 
theoretically is the right move. And obviously, he invented the computer. So um, he did find uh, the processing power that would one day solve chess. Chess has been solved. And so for him, that wasn't interesting because that's not life. In life, you never see the entire chessboard. You never see all the pieces. And so sure, you can learn a lot of mathematical thinking and strategy and a lot of stuff from chess. It's not like he said chess is a bad game, but it was boring for what he wanted, which was how do I actually gain insight into the human mind, into decisions on a life level. There is no such thing as perfect information in life. It just does not exist. 100% certainty, the right move, that does not exist. And I can't stress that enough because so many people think that there is such a thing as certainty, but in life there is not. Life is not a game. So that's chess. On the other side, you have roulette, and that's just gambling. There's nothing there. You can't solve it because... You're playing against the house and the house always wins. And there's, depending on what you're playing, you know, there, there are dice, there are whatever whatever it is, you spin the wheel, but that's it. Um, and so he said, that's also, that's just a complete lottery. That's also boring because once again, zero ways that it resembles strategic human decision-making. And poker sat in between. It was a game of skill, but with chance elements because you have this uncertainty. So it's unlike chess, which you can solve, poker is still unsolved because of the unknown information. And so for him, that's what made it interesting. That's what made it strategically complex in a way that mirrored human decision making and not just strategically complex in a mathematical way, which is what chess is. So having decided that poker is something that would be worthy of study, you approach a a very big name in the poker world, Eric Seidel. Tell us something about who he is. Eric Seidel is one of the greatest players of all time. Um, some people would say he is the greatest of all time. He is a player who's been around since the 1980s and has been consistently winning tournaments since then. And that's unique. That simply doesn't happen. There are no other tournament players like that. So if you look at people's track records, people who've been able to stay competitive at the highest level, usually it doesn't last more than a decade, maybe two. Even that's very rare. And so Eric's longevity is extremely different from other players that you find in the poker world, which right away tells you something about his mind. He comes from an older generation of players who use a psychological approach, more human-based approach to the game than mathematical. So a lot of the young players today are much more quants. So there are people who have PhDs in statistics and they play poker full-time. PhDs from Caltech, from MIT, from you know the best schools in the world. We have some Oxford grads who, who play poker. And they have a very highly mathematical way of looking at the game. Someone like Eric has a much more psychological approach, which was much more in line with my background. But he's been willing to adapt. He's been willing to look at all of these things and grow and change with the game. And so I wanted to learn some of that. I wanted, I could right away tell that there was going to be a different sort of mindset with him because of the very fact that he was still able to compete at the highest levels. And as I learned when I met him, he's unique in more ways than one. Um, he prefers New York to Vegas, which is very rare among poker players. He's, he's a New Yorker and splits his time between the two. And he was someone who just had a passion for life. As I learned 
from the first moment I met him. I mean, food, theater, music, you name it. He knows about it. He's excited about it. He wants to learn about it. And this is someone who I realized very early on could just teach me a lot about life and not just about poker, even though obviously he could also teach me a lot about poker and did. You interview throughout the book lots of big names in the poker world, lots to get you know to get insight into you know how they can help you with your game. But with Eric, you go to him with a a different proposition. What what are you asking him at the beginning of the book? <laughs> um, yeah, I gave him kind of a big ask. I, I asked if he uh, would basically let me tag along with him for a year, and if he would just teach me from the ground up and be my mentor, be my guru, be my guide through the poker world. It was a huge ask. Um, and obviously, it ended up being much more than a year. But luckily, we became friends. And I became kind of adopted into his family by the rest of his family members. Otherwise, this would not have worked. It was a very demanding thing that I did. And I am incredibly lucky that he saw the potential in it and was curious enough to try because here I am, someone who knows nothing about the game and who just trots up to him. I mean, I, I didn't quite trot up, obviously. I uh, I did a lot of research and I approached him very carefully and we had a planned meeting, but in a sense, trots up to him and says, hey, you don't know me, but why don't you teach me even though you've never taken a student before and even though I know nothing about the game? But I think that for him, he was able to see the potential of the project. And there were two things that intrigued him. One, I wasn't a poker player. I was someone with a psychology background. I was a writer. I was an outsider. And so I could really be a test of his philosophy. He could see, you know, can psychology still succeed? Can someone with no knowledge of the game, if she works hard, if she thinks well, if I teach her those psychological approaches and she has the tools at least i think she has the tools i'm assuming he thought something like that could she actually succeed and so for him that was an interesting challenge and then the second part of it was once again that i was an outsider and that i'd already written other books that i wrote for the new yorker that my audience was not a poker audience and eric is someone who really really loves the game of poker and is passionate about it and wants to grow it and wants to teach people to love the game as much as he does. And so I think he saw in me an opportunity to spread the message and to change the public image of poker in a broader way. And I think that he was very excited that that might happen. Before we start to talk about how that training goes, there's, I mean, there's lots of different varieties of poker. You've already mentioned the... Um, uh, no Limit Texas Hold'em is what I play. Is, is the variation you play. But there is also poker that's directly for, for cash and tournament poker, which is yep. what Eric plays and what you are going to get involved in. How does tournament poker work? It's a very good question. And I think that when most people think of poker um, who aren't poker players, they think of cash games because that's what you normally see depicted in popular media, which basically means that you buy in for a certain amount of money, you know, say $100, and you get $100 worth of chips. And every chip is actually worth the exact amount of money that it says on the chip. And they have a cash value. And you can cash out at any point. You know, say you win 
win a hundred dollars and you can say, okay, I'm done. I'm done for the night. Bye-bye. Um, you can lose it and you can decide, oh, I'm going to get more chips. Hey, chip runner, um, I need more chips. And so you give them another hundred dollars or however much in cash and you get more chips and you're able to do that indefinitely and you can leave whenever you want. You can come back whenever you want. It's basically a game that's always played on your terms in that sense. And also you get to pick the level you're playing at. So when you buy into a cash game, you know exactly what the stakes are and the stakes are never going to change. In order to change stakes, you need to change and go to a different table, go to a different game. Tournament poker is actually completely different. And the strategy is is very different. So in tournament poker, say you buy in for the same $100, you might get 100 chips, you might get 1,000 chips, you might get 10,000 chips. It doesn't matter because every single player is going to get the same number of chips and they're worthless. The only thing that they're there for is as a way of keeping relative score. And so your goal is to get all of the chips. But in terms of cash value, the value is zero. And what that actually means is that in freeze-out tournaments, which is kind of the, the purest form of tournament poker, if you bust, so if you lose all your chips, you're done. You're out. You can't rebuy. You're out of there. And if you decide, hey, I want more chips, too bad. You lost them and you, and you can't get any more. And you also can't walk away whenever you want. If suddenly you're the chip leader of the tournament, you have almost, you know, you have more chips than anyone else. And you're like, you know, this is good. I, I'd like to stay like this and get the ca- corresponding cash value. Nope, doesn't work that way. In any given tournament, anywhere between 10 and 15% of the field will cash. So they'll actually make some money. And the rest of the people will go home with zero, having lost however much money they paid to enter the tournament. And that's the way it's structured. And in terms of the stakes, the stakes keep going up at announced intervals of time. And so at the beginning, your chips might be worth X amount, but in an hour, they're going to be worth relatively less because the stakes are now higher. So your chips can have less bargaining potential, so to speak. And so the dynamics are very different because a tournament actually has a way of advancing that gives it a structure that's much more like a drama, like a Shakespearean drama is what I compare it to. You have a beginning, you have a middle, you have an end. You know, by act three, we're talking tragedy, not comedy. Half the cast is already dead that means that half the field is already out of there and i compare cash games much more to war and peace you know you're on page 2000 and you still are nowhere close to the end and you don't know how the thing ends and everything just seems to be progressing at the same glacial pace when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Maria Konnikova. We're talking about her latest book, The Biggest Bluff How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. And Maria, with the caveat that I don't want to give too much away about what happens on your journey, because the book reads like a, you know, it's, it reads like a thriller. It's absolutely gripping, and I would like people to experience that. We'll talk about some of the steps on the journey and something that obviously didn't exist when Eric was starting out, but that everybody can do now. Your first forays into this world is online poker. Yes. And it's funny that you should mention that because I'm from New York and I normally live in New York. But right now, as you and I are speaking, I'm sitting in an Airbnb in New Jersey because online poker is legal in New Jersey and illegal in New York. And I'm here to play the World Series of Poker online, which is a very funny thing. But that's a little caveat to say that, yes, indeed, there is this new world of online poker. When Eric was just starting out, this wasn't a thing. And then all of a sudden, you started being able to play poker on the computer. And this changed a lot of things. And it was so incredibly useful for me to have this tool. In fact, it was so useful that the first thing Eric said is that you have to start off playing online before you play live. And it's not that online poker is easier. It's that it's faster. So whereas in live poker, it takes time for a dealer to deal the hands, for everyone to look at the hands. Online, all this is automated. It's a computer. It's an algorithm. You have just software that does it for you. And so you can see the same hands in a week that a live player used to take a month to see. In a month, you might get in the same number of hands that a live player takes a year, two years, three years, depending on how much you're playing online. In a few months, you can have 10 years of live experience. And so it's a wonderful way of learning because you can play at very, very low stakes, stakes that you aren't afraid to lose. So I started off playing at five dollar tournaments and you can do that and you can see all of these different situations unfold and figure out okay this is what this situation feels like oh this is what this feels like this is what this feels like you get to make mistakes you get to put yourself in different spots you get to see what the landscape is and with any learning process experience is so incredibly important and so it's so 
crucial to be able to have an arena where you can experiment and where you can see lots of different outcomes in quick succession. I don't think that I would have been able to have the learning trajectory that I did without online poker because it would have simply taken me too long. I wouldn't have been able to gain that quick experience and that sheer volume of hands. And the other wonderful thing about it is that you can actually record your screen. So I was able to play tournaments and record the entire thing for Eric to review. For an amateur like me, if you're playing live, it's very overwhelming and it's very easy to forget details. It's very easy to forget nuances, to not note certain things that you need to note about hands. I mean, I got much better quickly, but at the beginning, I was just hopeless at describing hands that I played live because there was too much information to take in. Online, I didn't have to worry about it because it was all being recorded for me. And so if you're working with a coach, if you're working with a teacher, if you're working with someone who's going to help you improve, it's so great to have an objective, actual record of what you did, because then you can review it yourself. You can review it with someone else and you can see, okay, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Let's analyze this. Let's analyze that. It's the equivalent of having video footage for sports games, which is how athletes often will study and improve and get better, except you have perfect video footage from every single angle. You're able to see everything that went on and you're able to learn from that. So it's an invaluable tool. That said, I actually don't love online poker. I prefer live poker, and I think that I'm a much stronger player live than I am online because the psychology comes to bear much more when you can actually see people and interact with them. The online world is much more mathematical, but that was a great thing for me to learn from because the math is not my strong suit, and so it was definitely something that I needed to work on and to help strengthen. And being forced to play online poker made me have to deal with that in a way that I don't think I would have had to quite so early on had I just started playing live. And so, of course, one of the the world centres of poker, Las Vegas, you you go to. I've only ever been to Las Vegas once. I was 19 and I went for three days, so I wasn't old enough to go into any of the casinos and I think it remains three of the worst days of my life. And so (laughs) what was your initial exposure to Las Vegas like? Oh, I hated Las Vegas. I can only imagine what your experience was like. Because I don't like gambling. I actually don't like casinos. I still don't like casinos. I've come around to Las Vegas because I realized that there's a lot more to it than the Strip. There's a lot of wonderful stuff in Las Vegas that you can do. And there's great food and there's you know beautiful nature if you go outside of the city and go to, to the national parks. So there's a lot to do there. And I've made my peace with it, but I still don't love casinos. And my initial impression, I just walked out into this world and thought, this is hell. And then I realized, obviously, about a year later, a little more than a year later, that no, actually, Las Vegas is probably purgatory and Macau is hell because Macau makes Las Vegas look like the best place in the world. But at the moment, I thought, oh my God, this is terrible. This is so overwhelming. This is so soulless. Look at all these people, these poor people at slot machines. I hate slot machines. And I think that they're, I think they're terrible inventions that really take advantage of people. But I was just, I was not impressed. And it took a while for me to see the potential. And I still, to this day, I prefer, so I've, I've played poker now all over the world. And my favorite place to play in terms of the poker environment, it's not my favorite place to play in terms of the city, but the poker environment is the best in Monte Carlo because the place where you 
play, the Salle des Etoiles, the Room of Stars, is not in a casino. It's just poker. And so there are no slot machines. There are no roulette tables or craps tables or blackjack or any of that. It's actually just poker. And to me, that is so wonderful because it's the only game that actually interests me because it's not the gambling part of the casino. And if that could be, I feel like if we had a Salle des Etoiles all over the world, then people would potentially start seeing poker in a different light. So again, as I said, I don't want to give too much away about you know the direction <laughs> the book takes. Obviously, you've just mentioned that you ended up playing poker in Monaco, which might suggest that obviously, well, indeed, there wouldn't you know there wouldn't be a book if uh, if things hadn't panned out very well. But tell me about the first time you place significantly in a tournament. So my first significant place in a tournament was actually a win in Vegas. So I spent a few months in Vegas after I was playing online when Eric determined that I was ready to go and play live poker. And I went to all of the small tournaments, which are called the dailies and the nightlies. And Eric didn't let me play anything bigger because he said, look, you know, until you start doing well in these, um, you can't play higher stakes because you need to move up naturally. You need to be able to fund yourself. This is called the idea of the bankroll. Um, So you have to play within your bankroll, within your financial means. And that's a very important concept that people ignore in poker and in real life all the time, which is why I'm mentioning it, even though it was not your question. But so here I am playing all of these, you know, $35, $45 daily tournaments. And not doing very well and not doing very well and then coming close to cashing and not cashing and getting very discouraged but as it turns out learning things along the way and finally I enter this daily tournament at Planet Hollywood which is not the most glamorous of casinos on the strip but it will always have a special place in my heart because it was the place where I won my first tournament and I actually start doing well and things are coming together I also get lucky in a few spots I mean you can't win without luck and we get to the final table and I'm still in and people are busting and I'm still in and then all of the guys so I'm the only girl we should probably at this point mention that poker is 97% male there you go <laughs> Um, so I'm I'm the only female here. And they start telling, they start pressuring me. I have all the chips. I'm the chip leader of the tournament. Um, and they start pressuring me to do something called chopping, which means you stop playing and you just agree to certain amounts of money. based. You basically divide up the prize pool. And I don't really know what this is, but then one of them just says something pretty nasty to me that I just got very lucky and I'm going to lose all my chips and so I should just take this opportunity to chop the tournament, which gets me very mad. So of course I say, no, I'm not going to chop. Um, And so we keep playing and miraculously um, I don't lose my chips and I end up winning the tournament and I win over, I don't remember exactly how much it was. It was over $900, less than $1,000. And I'm ecstatic. This is the moment I've been waiting for um, because I've been losing so much money because I haven't been cashing in anything. And it was a real turning point for me because I think that had I just kept losing and losing and losing, I probably would have eventually walked away discouraged and thought, you know what? I guess this really isn't for me. This isn't my game. I've given it my best shot. But the fact that even though this was a tiny tournament, 
wasn't um, in the grand scheme of things. It really meant something to me to win. And it gave me the fuel to keep going and to work harder and to keep improving. And I think that that was the seed that got everything off the ground in terms of my live tournament career. So as you've just mentioned, like another thing that might put you know a certain percentage of the population off getting into the game of poker is it's it's enormous gender imbalance and not just in terms of numbers but you describe often in the book how aggressive the game can be in terms of the tactics that you know male opponents will use to try and sort of get one over on you and yeah describe some of the things that happen over your journey Oh my God, uh, what didn't happen? So yeah, I've, I've experienced everything that you could possibly imagine at the poker table. There is a lot of sexism and some of it is overt. Other times people don't, I think, realize what they're doing is sexist, but it is anyway. I've been called every name under the sun. I will not ruin your listeners' delicate ears by saying a lot of them, but they were not pretty. I've been propositioned at a poker table, literally, given a price that this person would pay to have me accompany him to his hotel room, um, which is jaw-dropping, but happened. I have been... (laughs) One experience that really stayed with me was... uh, was someone who was actually pretty smart about what he did. He kept calling me little girl from the moment I sat at the table. And so just in generally little girl, those aren't bad words, but they can be very bad and very demeaning. And he just, from the moment he said, Hey, you know, Hey, little girl, you know, does your husband play poker? Is that why you're here? He just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And he knew exactly what he was doing. And he got to me and he ended up busting me from the tournament. So I ended up losing all of my chips to him because I was, so upset and that was a very useful technique and I learned a lot from that and so I after going through a lot of these experiences I just had an aha moment when I where I realized wow these people are always going to see me as female first and a poker player second and they underestimate me and that means I can use it to my advantage so there was definitely a turning point where I went from letting all of this get to me to figuring out okay how do I use it to actually take all of their money so that I can use their own biases against them and even at the highest levels these biases exist if you talk to some of the best players in the world they'll be like oh no no you know I don't do this but the data show otherwise there was an interesting study of online poker that looked at all stakes including the best players and they found that people People bluffed players who had female sounding names or avatars, which are the little pictures that you choose to represent yourself, they would bluff them 6% more than they did male sounding names. And then when people, when you confronted them with this evidence and said, hey, did you see that you're doing this? They denied it. They're like, no, no, that must have been the other players. That wasn't me. So this is something that definitely happens. But it's, if you're aware of it, you can flip it on its head and you can actually use it to make money and to use people's preconceptions of you against them. And I developed a lot of different strategies based on how people reacted to me. I figured out, okay, well, how do I take advantage of that? How do I actually play differently in a way that will help me win? Maybe if you think that, you know, I'm a little girl and I shouldn't be at the table. Okay, well, then maybe I can get away with some things that uh, I couldn't get away with otherwise because you don't think I'm capable of it. You don't think I'm capable of running a big bluff or... Maybe it's actually different. Maybe you think that 
you're such a macho man that you could never fold to a little girl. Okay, well, if that's the way you think, then I'm never going to bluff you. I'm only going to bet very strong hands and you're going to call me anyway. And so it was very important to just figure out how do I, what is this specific person's bias and how do I exploit it? How do I turn it on its head so that I can maximize my own value? And it was something, this was a lesson that I definitely took from the poker table to my everyday life because I realized that I'd internalized a lot of gender stereotypes in the way that I behave normally and poker forced me to deal with that, forced me to correct it and forced me to learn to overcome it and become a much stronger person as a result. The reason it forced me to do that is obviously it affects your bottom line. If you don't confront this, if you don't deal with it, if you don't find ways to improve, you're going to lose all of your money. And so that's a very, very powerful motivator when it comes to learning quickly. I want to finish up asking about some other ways in which this journey to learn poker affected other areas of your life in terms of how it sort of changed your behavior and what you learned. Before we do that, again, you know, not knowing anything about poker before I read your book, one thing I did know, or thought I knew, from films or, you know, some James Bond film or something, is the idea of the tell, the idea that, you know, I get a good hand, and every time I get a good hand, I'll start fiddling with my watch or something, and that's a dramatic moment because it gives away the game. Turns out, it's much more complicated than that. Yes, this is absolutely true. And it's so easy. So many people have these preconceptions that, oh, you can, and this isn't just true of poker. So my last book was about con artists and people had the exact same notions there too. Oh, how do you tell when people are lying? You know, how do I tell when a con artist is out to get me? How do I tell when a poker player is bluffing? You can't most of the time if the person is good. Your right nostril doesn't suddenly start twitching and you don't suddenly start, you know, grabbing the Oreo cookie and twisting it if you have a strong hand. That doesn't normally happen and people are usually really really bad at spotting deception and it's it's a lesson that's very difficult to learn and people mostly have good poker faces so we know we're supposed to control our face we know we're supposed to control our emotions we do that all the time in real life not just in poker because if you constantly express every single thing you were thinking and feeling on your face at any given moment in time you would not be a very popular person and you'd be you'd be a joy in social interactions so we're very good at controlling those types of things but we're less good at controlling other parts of our body specifically our hands so i worked with some researchers who have done some really interesting work that show that we're looking in the wrong place that actually a lot of the information that people give off a lot of the tells lion in hands in motion in how you do things with your hands specifically in poker how you handle chips how you handle cards how you place bets and you're able to tell a lot about people's strength and whether they're actually strong or just trying to look strong based on that and it makes a lot of sense i mean first of all hands have a pulse you can see you can see someone's heart rate by looking at the pulse um you can see skin conductance so are you sweating or not 
trembling, things like that. Um, and we're also just much less used to thinking about them. We think about controlling our poker face, but we don't really think about our what I call our poker hands. We don't really pay attention to what we're doing with our hands a lot of the time. And whenever you're not paying attention to something, you might be giving off information. Just to finish off then, you mentioned a few things, but yeah, let's talk about some other ways in which you might have learned some lessons from the game of poker that you've been able to adapt into your real life you talk about things like decision making negotiations you know controlling your emotions in the book how it sort of gave you more confidence in negotiating there's one particular moment where you talk about being asked to write a magazine article for instance yeah well well I think that negotiating is a very good one because it's something that's very difficult for me and something I've always struggled with and I think that's true of a lot of people especially women but also men negotiating for yourself can be hard it can be very difficult to ask for things and poker really gave me an appreciation of the types of strategies that may be successful in terms of thinking how I played a hand and then applying that to how I played a negotiating hand. Poker teaches you a really, really important lesson that is really, really difficult to remember in everyday life, which is nobody knows your cards, just like you don't know anyone else's. All they can infer is what your cards are based on other information. And a lot of that other information is coming from you. It's how you present yourself, how you're acting, what you're doing or what you're not doing. It's so easy to think, oh, everyone knows I have a rubbish hand. And oh, that person must be strong because look at how confident they are. In poker, you learn very, very quickly that being strong and looking confident are two very, very different things. And the players who are best able to appear strong often get really good results. And the people who think, oh, everyone must see how weak I am, people can see it because that's the way you're portraying yourself. And you're not able to accomplish nearly as much. Now, take that from the poker table and realize that in a negotiation, nobody knows what cards you hold. Nobody knows what you're actually willing to do, not willing to do. Nobody knows your bottom line except for you. And it's so easy to think that they do know and that, oh, they can see right through me. No, they can't. All they see is how you're acting. And so I was able to, for the first time in my life, um, get a much higher per word rate for a magazine piece than I'd ever been able to because I realized this lesson and I tried to use it to my advantage. I thought, okay, well, this person doesn't know what I will settle for or won't settle for. And I don't actually have to tell her anything. I say everyone, I use her and she in terms of uh, every single person I write about in the book who's anonymous. So this does not mean that the editor in question was female. Could have been, it could have been either gender. So I told I told her, you know, I I don't know. I'm not sure I have the time to do this. Basically, what I was trying to do was defer my decision and put the ball in her court. Because one of the things you learn in poker is that position is key. You want the other person to give you as much information as possible rather than giving information yourself. And so I just did this multiple times over and over and over, not revealing the strength of my own hand and trying to you know, figure out, okay, well, what what are they willing to do? What's this magazine willing to do? And eventually I got offered without even asking a much higher rate just because I kept 
just deferring the decision and not saying, oh, no, this is too low. I'm not going to do it. But just passing the action on saying, you know, I'm still not sure. I really need this. I really need that. Um, and I never named a single number. And it was a style of negotiating that I'd never tried before and ended up working for me. I'm not going to I'm not saying it ended up revolutionizing my life. And every single time I've now been able to get these wonderful per word rates for magazine pieces. But it was a start. And it just made me realize that a lot of these lessons about the power of information, about the power of how you portray yourself, of what confidence can actually convey, about the power of informational advantages and being in a position where you let the other person give off more information than you yourself are giving off. These are all very, very powerful lessons when it comes to negotiating. So I've been talking to Maria Konnikova. We've been talking about her latest book, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself and Win, which is out in the UK from Forty State. Maria, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. It's a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.